So welcome to Commodity Conversations, the podcast brought to you by the team at Mercado, where we bring you the latest and the background stories on agricultural commodity markets. Today, we're fortunate to have Michael Whitehead join us. Good morning, Rob. This is episode 164 for Mercado Commodity Conversations, Michael, and we've had you on before, but let's reintroduce you. You're the Head of Agribusiness Insights for ANZ, and you're the lead in the ANZ team that produces the monthly Commodity Insights. The just, just released December edition is a great read, very insightful, comprehensive, Michael, and well done to you and your team. Now, I want to start off by using a quote out of your report, and I'd like to comment in the forward by attributed to Mark Bennett, who's head of your agribusiness and specialised commodity uh, business in ANZ. And he says this, while 2021 has been a challenging year for many Australians, it has also been one in which the agri-sector has more than shown the resolve, resilience and innovation for which it is renowned. Heading into 2022, the future looks even more exciting again. Now, Michael, we've been looking at these uh, agricultural markets for a long time. These are unprecedented times for Australian agriculture. Absolutely, Rob. Look, thanks once again very much for, for having us on. Uh, as you say, um, we've got a, a, a great team of agri-researchers here. And as we mark the end of the year here, I know this isn't meant to be a mutual uh, backslapping uh, occasion, but huge congratulations to you and the Mercado team on another great year of agri-analysis too. Um, absolutely vital reading for anyone in the industry. As you say, 2021 and the challenges, we could almost call it 2020, 2021, um, the, the two years of challenges, they seem to roll into each other uh, and touch wood, touch wood that things are looking uh, far less disruptive for 2022. Um, goes without saying that the, the main challenge over the past two years has been the COVID disruptions to the industry and what we all feared would happen and what did happen. It's intriguing to look back, for example, at a, a chart of agribusiness share prices to the start of 2020 and around March 2020 when the disruptions happened, all the pessimistic forecasts, all the bad things that were meant to happen, you look at share prices dip and then you look for agribusinesses in particular as they grew and grew and grew after that because food supply chains, agri-supply chains managed to work out all the problems that were put in front of them. Uh, whether it was meat getting for cattle getting into the sale yards, into the processes, onto the shelves, whether it was the horticultural issues and certainly labour issues there, but getting to the shelves as well. Uh, whether it was shearing, availability of shearers continues to be an issue, but uh, the industry working with government, working with industry body, working with farmers managed to get around so many of those as well. We've also got to look offshore because the other big challenge over the past couple of years and one that's going to be probably bigger in 2022 is the whole geopolitical one. For Australian farmers, whilst we're working in our sheepyards, whilst we're on our headers, whilst we're in our dairies, doing as much as we can for our operations, so much of what impacts us is out of our control. Control. And we can talk about it, whether it's what's happening in China in terms of not just tariffs, but what's happening with their, their pig herd and their feed needs, whether it's what the Russians are deciding to do for political reasons with their beef quotas, whether it's two cows in Brazil showing signs of BSE, mad cow disease, and what that has done, and more so what it will do next year for the entire global beef trade 
those things have been huge, but they will be bigger in the next year. Now, let's dig into that a little bit, because I think your point, it's worth reinforcing. We've all had another example shown to us of the resolve, as, as uh, Mark said, the resolve and the resilience of our farmers to deal with the situations here. And, um, you know, you make a really good point. There was a lot of things thrown up that might go wrong. In fact, you know, it's the, um, the can-do attitude that got us through. But overseas is where we're really going to see the impact of on our, on our commodities. So let's start off with beef. Now, we've got record prices and they're showing little supply of, um, of falling sharply and the retail demand is staying high. So this export demand, as you outlined in your report, is the real driver. What, what do you see for the next 12 months? It's absolutely going to be a combination of factors on this export demand side. Let's break down a few of these. Uh, obviously, we continue to have our, our four big export markets, uh, Japan, uh, South Korea, the US and China going forward. China, yes, we've had the political issues in terms of some of the processes being shut out, but China's beef need and red meat need has continued to be strong. They are very rapidly rebuilding their pig herds, so their domestic amount of meat's coming back to the point that they've just lifted the tariffs on pork in, uh, imports into China from 8% to 12%. So they're going to need slightly less beef, but they're still going to need a lot. Let's go back to that South American point. Two cattle in Brazil are showing signs of BSE. China shuts down Brazilian imports of beef. Yes, they've been allowed back in in the past week, but with regulations. All beef coming in must be under 30-month-old, uh, must be boneless as well. Uh, similarly, China had problems with Argentine beef coming in, uh, with the Argentine government putting uh, stoppages on exports from it. What does it mean for Australia? We are reliable. We are good quality. We are always open to export. Uh, we're not going to shut down so we can change the price of beef on our shelves. So Australia will continue to be in demand globally. So, so watch that space as well. The other one is going to be the American cattle market as well. We did some modelling on uh, Australian beef prices at the start of this year. Uh, in fact, going back into the end of last year as well, when our model said, uh, when we put in a range of factors, everything from the female slaughter rate, uh, the Australia-US dollar uh, ratio, uh, things like the weather, where the rainfall was going, but importantly, the size of the US beef herd. And that model showed that cattle prices would go to around 1,200 cents. Now, we almost sheepishly put that model out into the marketplace, or cattleishly, if you want to say it, um, and said, well, here's what our model says, but yes, could this happen? And it happened. Here we sit uh, in late December with uh, about 1169, yeah. this young cattle indicator. Why, why I raise that is that we're about to see the US herd uh, potentially, it's fairly strong at the moment, but may start to tighten as well. And America may need more beef as well. Overall, that, that whole global issue Global beef demand will remain strong into our major markets. Uh, consumers around the world are coming back from COVID. Consumers around the world are getting wealthier, as they have been over the last decade. They will continue to want that red meat, so the fundamentals there are strong. Two things to watch. One will be the rain. Every day that we get good rain is one day closer to the next drought. The forecasts don't say it's imminent, but it's somewhere out there. 
So producers need to just be sensible and strategic going forward. And the second one, dare we say, if COVID impacted humans, let's look at what uh, biosecurity did, particularly to Brazil and their whole prospects going forward. If we go back 20 years and look at what mad cow disease did for European beef exports, they are only now to some degree recovering 20 years later. So we must, must, must continue to be vigilant. So if anybody can uh, actually get overseas for a holiday, next time you fly back into Melbourne or Sydney or anywhere, don't complain about customs going through everything because it's that important. Absolutely right. And, um, and it's a point that we've been making for some time about the biosecurity and the value of, of it is to our red meats. You mentioned um, the pig industry in China growing again and uh, and global beef demand. It's going to require grain to make to, to support that industry. What are you seeing with the grain on the grain side? And I note in your report, you know, grain prices continue to climb as things like Russian export quotas are concerns. But at the same time, we've got high fertilizer prices, which will impact on planting decisions going forward. So how do you summarize that commodity, Michael? Look, grain is an interesting one, and it's fascinating. You raise some of the predictions we put in our report, and if a week is a long time in politics, then a, a week or two is also a very long time in grain markets. Uh, when we wrote some of this a couple of weeks ago, the rains had just fallen on the New South Wales crop um, and, and on other parts of the Australian grain crop. It was yet to be seen at the time what damage there would be in terms of crop losses, and it would yet to be seen what damage would be in terms of changes to the quality as well. One of the things with grain and grain prices to remember is that the grain price is more, it's driven by demand, obviously, geopolitical demand, but it's driven by the traders in Chicago. Uh, for those who aren't in the grain industry, those of us who have been exposed to it for years know that there is a hell of a lot more grain traded than is actually produced. So, so many grain price changes are driven by somebody in the Chicago Board of Trade going, oh, good heavens, there's been a, a lot of rain in Australia, their crop will go way down, prices are going to go up, uh, I, will, I will go for a high price. And so that's what happened. So we saw those price changes. We're seeing things obviously coming down now because the damage was uh, not as bad as people thought. Uh, the changes in quality did mean a change in a reasonable volume from milling to feed grain, but there is still a strong demand for that feed grain. And as you say, Rob, whether that is into the Chinese market, and China will need a lot of feed grain or even into the Australian feedlot market as well and that is another area that is going to get stronger and as our report talked about feedlot numbers uh, not just getting stronger in the major feedlots but for sheep feedlots as well they will continue to to grow on farm so so that's going to be one of the impacts there the fertilizer price one is going to be an interesting one. First of all, yes, in the last week or so, um, grain prices have obviously gone down. But if you look at global wheat prices, for example, whilst they've gone down, where they are today would still have been a record price uh, as of October 31. So it's only been a dip from a from a from a big high. If we uh, if we look at the impact of fertilizer prices. 
yes, that's still playing out. And yes, we will see a lot of growers, particularly larger growers, sitting down and redoing their numbers and working it out with their fertilizer suppliers as well. Will it change the mix of what I grow between my wheat, my, bar my barley, my canola? Will I run a few more sheep this year instead? Because confidence in the sheep market's obviously there. So, so right now, uh, there will still be people who haven't got on the header and are planning to get out there, but uh, it will have some impact next year. We'll probably say that the impact is not going to be enormous just because of the cash flows coming in uh, from a very good crop, even with those lower prices, means that uh, a lot of the calculations for next year will stay as they were. So I'm talking to Michael Whitehead today, head of ANZ Agribusiness, and we're bringing to light their new report, uh, which is terrific, Michael. Congratulations. Let's talk about our old favourite, the sheep industry. Global demand for sheep looks look strong and and i note in your report you say australia's lost a little bit of ground to the to new zealand into the us however you know it's hardly being noticed in the markets and uh given that we're now at a time of high supply and the markets are really holding strong look in terms of that loss of demand to new zealand it uh there was a silver lining to that cloud one of the things about sheep meat exports and, and sheep, if we had to put a bet on one of the things that is going to look good in 2022 and going forward, uh, sheep meat, globally demand. One of the great things about it, if you put a classic economic analysis over it, is that we effectively at the moment have one competitor in sheep markets in terms of global volume, and that is New Zealand. What we saw in Australia over the year was a currency that at times went up further than the markets thought it would. And if you are an importer in the US redoing your imports by month and you see that the New Zealand equivalent is a lot cheaper in one month than the Australian one, you are going to go there. So that's what happened. And we saw that dip against New Zealand at one point. The good side to that, though, is that those importers into the US particularly have such a strong need for sheep meat. It hasn't just been a flash in the pan. Uh, it is something that has shown consistent demand into that US market that we wouldn't have thought about five years ago. Uh, five, 10 years ago, we, we looked at our lamb competition going into Europe and the UK and grizzled about how much better the New Zealanders were doing. We had our live sheep exports into the Middle East and that market's changing in a way, but changing in a good way. But if we, if we look at the strong demand going forward into the US, if we continue to look at the strong demand going into China, and, and we need to talk about where the changes will be in the Middle East and North Africa in terms of demand and their sheep consumption structure, then that is a positive for that industry. Now, we can't talk about sheep without talking about wool. And some at the moment are saying that wool is a byproduct of the sheep industry. Um, however, it depends where you are because the wool market's not all the same. So if you're a prime lamb producer and doing very well out of prime lambs, you've got this problem of crossbred wool worth nothing. However, if you're a fine wool producer, your price is actually dear. The market is actually higher now than it was this time last year. And if you're in the 17 micron category, Michael, you're probably 25% up on this time last year. So there's a, there's a, there's a couple of different things happening in that wool market, isn't there? Absolutely. In fact, can I start with your point on, on crossbreds as well, Rob, because you, you do sound fairly pessimistic on that. Um, but that uh, that distant dot you can see is the light at the end of the tunnel, potentially, yeah. for the crossbred producers. When you're looking at 
fiber prices globally, uh, you do some comparisons and then they're, they're not a sort of 100% reliable, but they're interesting. Uh, Crossbred, obviously, looking at that carpet market globally. And one of the interesting things we've seen lately is that as, as the artificial fiber prices into the carpet market have gone up, that has made crossbred potentially more attractive yeah. um, for the Australian crossbred producers and particularly for the New Zealand ones. And our, a lot of our New Zealand friends complain about the sheer amount of money they lose on shearing um, just because the market hasn't been there. The second side to it is, and part of it's going to be in marketing for the crossbred industry bodies, it is a natural fibre. And in this day and age, going forward to global consumers, once they've renovated their houses, they're going to want to put carpet in, convince them that it should be a, a crossbred carpet. So there, there is optimism for the crossbred price. You are absolutely right on, say, the 17 micron, for example. Wool is always one of the most fascinating of agri sort of price models in terms of where it's going, its volatility, uh, the impact of a few buyers sitting there in auctions, the impact of particular countries going in and out of the market, uh, the impact of the European winter and how much European consumers will be in, in advance impacting what's going to be bought. Uh, and things were pessimistic very much for wool at the start. We thought everyone was going to run A, out of money, uh, and not be buying fine woolen clothing anymore, and B, wouldn't be buying suits anymore because they'd never go back to an office. So, so we have seen that wool production go down, but the demand has remained strong. To your point, and, and to those producers who are balancing between whether they're going to increase their prime lamb component or whether they're going to increase their, their fine wool component, it's not the worst dilemma in the world to have. <laughs> uh, and, and we are seeing a lot of them looking to 2022, trying to work out that balance. What we have seen, and some of the numbers are showing it, is because of the high lamb prices and mutton prices, uh, perhaps a reasonable amount of wool left sitting in wool sheds uh, or in, in storage houses as well, because producers are able to hold back more and more because their meat cash flows al allow them to, uh, and to be able to put it out to market later on. So there will continue to be volatility in wool markets. There always is. We're not going to see some of the huge disruptions that uh, we have seen in decades past from, from global issues as well. Um, but once again, uh, the, the forecast for the finer microns definitely does remain strong and a recovering global economy adds to that. I, I noticed in your report also, Michael, you comment that the, you know, the, uh, the wool share of overall sheep production is likely to... Um, make oversupply less likely. And I think that's an important point. I mean, I think we've just noted, Angus reported a couple of weeks ago, the intention to mate to Merinos is just fallen below or to a lowest level ever. So that's going to keep wool supply constrained as well. Look, it's interesting, and we did chart that in the report, that if you take the, the breakdown in the overall revenue coming out of the sheep industry, what percentages will and what percentages meet, and you only have to go back to about 1984, 1985 or so, uh, to see that uh, wool made up about 90%. I mean, let's think about that. 90% of all the revenue of the sheep industry in Australia. And it has continued to go down from that peak for a number of reasons uh, that, that we in the industry are well aware of. But the fact that it's gone down to around 40% or so means that it's a good thing. The popularity of lamb and the popularity of mutton is there is good on one hand. 
but 40% is not a small amount of a market. 40% is pretty close. That demand is there. That revenue is there. Um, those uh, terrific wool growers around uh, the whole industry who are continuing always to innovate in their operations as well will continue to get a better product. Uh, even if you say that the merino component of that is going down as well, it will continue to be a strong part of the industry. And it's showing a slight recovery lately too. It may have dipped down for 20 years, but it's edging up again. Now, one of the, the uh, quiet achievements, I guess, is the dairy industry. And, and the dairy industry, the reason that I think um, it's a quiet industry is because sometimes you hear terrible stories coming out from the dairy farmers, how, you know, we're not hearing much at the moment. And I suspect it's because things are going pretty well. Look, dairy is, dairy is another fascinating one. All of agriculture is fascinating, <laughs> but uh, right. dairy, dairy not less than any of the others. Could I start with this on one big word? Um, and think of this as one of the words for 2022. It's protein and, and, and it's diet as well. One of the things that consumers in Australia and globally have done through COVID is, is reevaluate their diets. They've looked at where their protein is going to come from and they've looked at how healthy they and their families are going to be. And in a way, you could say dairy products are back. Let's not worry about almond milk and oat milk and other things. The dairy part of the diet is going to be stronger in Australia and globally too. So that's good for the demand side. On the production side and why things are going particularly well is not dissimilar to the sheep and cattle side. We've seen that rationalisation of the smaller farms be bought by the neighbours or on the dairy side uh, be transformed from dairy into cattle farms in a lot of areas as well. Uh, that consolidation, I mean, it's interesting on an agricultural history side, here's something to think about or read about over your holidays when people have time. But are we, are we still recovering from the soldier settlement plans and so many of those small farms in places like southwestern Victoria, places like Gippsland, northeast Victoria, a lot of the, the dairy areas, only now are we seeing dairy operations grow to a scale uh, where they can really find that efficiency. And I suppose the third big point on dairy is that it had a surge in about five or six years ago when Chinese demand for Australian dairy products went through the roof, uh, particularly from dairy infant formula. We had a lot of investors come in. Uh, we had some corporate issues in the industry. It took a little while to recover from that, but it has reached a level where it's Operating, as you say, it's humming along. The operators in there are efficient. Uh, the product has demand. The technology is coming on stream to make it more and more efficient. Yes, labor continues to be an issue. But a prediction for 2022 is that the institutional investment, the corporate investment into agriculture, whilst overall it will be strong, is likely to rediscover a couple of areas. It, the corporate investment loves beef. Corporate investment loves cropping. It is finding a new love for sheep and it will refind its love for dairy. Well, I, I think that's really good information, Michael. I just want to, we, we don't cover as quite as many commodity markets as you guys do, but um, I'm really interested in the cotton insights that you have. And cotton prices have reached the highest level in 10 years. I mean, that's got to be good for Australia because if, firstly, if you're a cotton producer, but secondly, if you're competing with cotton, with wool, and, uh, then maybe that's a positive as well. Look, two sides to that, and absolutely, and, and the cotton producers deserve it. Um, when, when we have dry weather, 
and the sort of the, the dry through 2018, 2019, um, few crops get his hard as cotton. So, so if prices are high, that's great. And once again, like grain prices particularly, so much of a high domestic cotton price is driven by what's happening in the rest of the world. And some of the big global competitors in other parts of the world have been hit by, by bad crops. Uh, Australia's had ample water for the last couple of years. So in a world that needs a lot of cotton, uh, in a world where consumers are going out and buying more garments as well, in a world where consumers, and we talked about it with the crossbred war, where consumers are increasingly looking at the label on the rack and wanting something natural and therefore going to cotton over the artificial ones, that makes demand strong. So, so good news for Australia at the moment. Interesting that you talk about that cotton versus wool price uh, price difference because that always is one. Wool is, uh, well, we know it's a great product. It, it accounts for way less of the world's apparel than cotton does. So, so cotton's main competition is the artificial fibres uh, impacted by the oil price uh, uh, and how that flows down to microfibres, polyesters, acrylics, other things there. Does it really impact the demand with wool? To some degree, yes. So that high cotton price will be good for wool, but cotton itself won't be losing any sleep over that. No. no. Now, um, we're, one of the things that's been happening uh, that's, that's got us all a bit concerned is our, um, our wine industry. And, and in your wine insights, you, you note that, um, you know, there's high China tariffs. They're not going to go away. Um, there's a reduction in exports, which may lead to a domestic oversupply, which for some people is probably not a bad thing. Um, but on the other hand, we're seeing strong growth in markets, including the UK and Hong Kong. So there's sort of a, you know, yin and yang with the wine industry. Look, you're absolutely right. And, and with the wine industry, yes, China put on tariffs of over 200%. Uh, and the Chinese market knew they were coming. This is towards the end of last year. So there was a surge in exports to China and then a fall away to next to nothing. And that's next to nothing going from here directly into China. And, and China came out subsequently to that when there was some thought, uh, maybe some media comment that this may be a short term thing to reiterate that this would be a, a process that would be in place for years. You talked about the, the growth into those two markets, and they're interesting, uh, the UK and Hong Kong. First of all, we've seen a surge in exports to Hong Kong of Australian wine. One wonders how much of that may be finding its way into China. Who knows? Uh, the surge into the UK is similar to the surge into the US. That has been at the very top levels, the main, the most expensive wines as well. The UK has always been our biggest market for bulk wine, the wine that goes out in very large containers that gets blended uh, and sort of sold at the lower end of the market. But wonderfully, the Brits are now discovering a taste for our, our best and most expensive reds, uh, as are the Americans as well. Where the industry will see some impacts overall of China is still yet to be played out because there's a lot of wine that hasn't been exported to China that is still sitting in tanks in South Australia, in New South Wales, in all wine production areas in Australia, where it still has to somehow find its way into a market, into blends, 
possibly into the supermarkets with their own labels on their own shelves as well, uh, how it will compete with so many of the other labels uh, in the industry will probably take a year or two to play out. And that's why we're seeing some of the smaller independent wineries. And wherever we're listing in Australia, we know our local wineries as well uh, who are competing with the big players. And what they need to do is say, right, it's going to get more competitive. How do I change what I'm doing? Do I increase my cellar door sales? Do I increase my uh, regional tourism? Because as we all know, well, here comes the Australian summer and everybody's holidaying at home and spending huge money there. Well, let's get more tourists into that as well. And when they get back home to Sydney or Melbourne or Adelaide or wherever it may be, make sure they keep buying my wine by mail order as well. It is going to change the structure of the industry. The last point to raise on the wine industry has been a fascinating COVID one. Uh, Three points uh, in our report, uh, amongst many, that we saw about wine. Over the course of COVID, one age group drank less wine overall, and that was the the younger generation, uh, sort of the 18s to 30s. In a way, they re-evaluated what they were doing and said, no, we're going to drink less. Uh, It was the the Gen Xs that drank a lot more. Uh, Well, not a lot more, but a reasonable amount more by the end. They dipped, and when they went up, we could probably put that down to homeschooling uh, and the exhaustion (laughs) that came from that. And the third point was the change in what the average Australian bought over the course of COVID. The average Australian ultimately drank less of the sub-$10 wine and more of the over-$30 wine because people, for a number of reasons, maybe said, well, I've got more money in my pocket because I'm not going to Bali and life is short. Let's have a few more luxuries at home. So there's been a number of changes. Well, that, uh, that could almost be your signature quote, Michael. Let's, uh, you know, life is short. Let's buy more expensive wine. Um, I want to finish on one area that I know we need to learn more and more about, and you've covered it well, and it's in the horticulture area. And I love the, the, the question you start with there, are increasing food prices the new norm? So we, we know we hear about the labour shortages that, that many horticultural uh, industries are hit by. We hear about the rain and storm events, which are obviously negative. But on the other side, we've got a strong production season. Um, you know, we've got positive um, aspects to that. So on balance, it looks like, um, you know, horticultural prices are going to be pretty solid. And, and I guess by extrapolation, Michael, um, food prices are going to stay strong. Absolutely. It ties back once again into a few things, Rob. One is the diet side of things. And these consumers shopping for themselves or their family over the last couple of years decided to get healthier. It's been a long-term trend. It's a trend in all developed countries. Interestingly, particularly in the US and China and Asian markets rapidly doing it too. Consumers wanting more fruit, more blueberries, more spinach, um, all these things to increase the, the fruit amount in their diet. So, so that's going up. The horticultural industry in Australia has been impacted not just by labour, but by freight availability going out, something it has to continue to tackle. Your point on, on food prices is a very important one. It's a subtle one, but it is a changing one. Food prices in this country have been lower than a lot of the developed world for many years. To paraphrase the Beatles uh, from back in the USSR, we don't know how lucky we are in (laughs) terms of what we pay in the supermarket. Um, And we've had it plentifully. 
there will be changes, whether they are impacted by a range of things, whether it's the price of fertiliser, the price of land, uh, the price of getting your food from the farm to the, the processor, uh, the price of rental in the supermarket as well. It, they will go up. They won't go up to a degree that is going to break the bank, uh, but consumers will continue to notice this. If we go back to meat and we talk about that in this report and the previous one, the fact that the price of beef has gone up to a reasonable degree on shelves, but the level of people buying it has not been impacted shows that consumers are, are building this into what they do. On the horticultural side, yes, we may see some of those price increases go up. And yes, consumers want year-round access to every part of the, the horticultural supply chain, every fruit, every vegetable. So in the off-season for Australia, it is going to cost you more to get the American, the European, the South American, the Asian equivalent onto your shelves. But we are seeing that, that consumers will pay that. So that is definitely going to be a change going forward. Michael, it's been terrific to chat to you about agriculture and, and the outlook. The, the passion for agriculture comes through in your uh, comments and your and your voice. So we really appreciate that, especially at a time when we've got such positive drivers in the market. So congratulations on your report. Thanks for joining Commodity Conversations, and we hope we can speak with you again in the new year. Rob, thank you very much. And once again, congratulations to you and all the team at Mercado on another great year. So thanks to all the Mercado and the Commodity Conversations team. I just want to make a special mention where Dave, who covers the technical aspects and gets the podcast to air every week, and Olivia, who each week manages the content and the recording and generally ensures that the Commodity Conversations podcast is relative and informative, and certainly your contribution today, Michael, has been that. A Merry Christmas to our readers and listeners, and we look forward with a lot of optimism to Australian agriculture for 2022. Thank you. Meridian Agriculture is a multidisciplinary specialist consultancy established by Dr. Mike Stevens. Meridian 16 consultants spread across six locations in New South Wales and Vic employ an evidence-based, scientific approach to farming and a personalised manner with their clients. Meridian specialises in improving both financial and operational aspects of farming enterprises and guiding families through the often difficult transition of succession planning. Head to their website meridian-ag.com.au to learn more.